Born on America's darkest day of 9-11, the Tunnel to Towers Foundation has been helping America's heroes ever since. When a first responder or military service member doesn't come home and young children are left behind, Tunnel to Towers pays the mortgage on the family home to lift the financial burden. For severely injured veterans and first responders, Tunnel to Towers builds mortgage-free smart homes, enabling severely injured heroes to move around their homes more independently. Through the Foundation's Homeless Veteran Program, Tunnel to Towers is providing housing and services to homeless veterans. More than 3,300 were helped last year alone. Because all veterans who honorably served, whether in peacetime or war, deserve our nation's gratitude. People who put their lives on the line for our country and our communities need your help now more than ever. Join Tunnel to Towers on its mission to do good and never forget 9-11 or the sacrifices of this country's heroes. Donate $11 a month at T2T.org. That's T2T.org. Hey, it's Will Friedle. And Sabrina Bryan. And we're the hosts of the new podcast, Magical Rewind. You may know us from some of your favorite childhood TV movies like My Date with the President's Daughter. And the Cheetah Girls movies. Together we're sitting down to watch all the movies you grew up with and chat with some of your favorite stars and crew that made these iconic movies happen. So kick back, grab your popcorn, and join us. Listen to Magical Rewind on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie. Because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to More Than a Movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Buck Brief, everybody. Very special guest on this edition of the program. We are joined right now by Bernard Hudson. He spent 28 years in the CIA's director of operations and retired as the chief of counterterrorism, where he headed the agency's global response to terrorist threats. He retired in 2017 served as a fellow at Harvard University as in, and is in the international drone industry now. Bernard, uh, honored to have you here, sir. A, uh, Great to a, talk with you, Buck. A senior brother from Langley, if you will. I, had, I did a short stint there myself a long time ago. It was an interesting place. Even um, a short stint is a long time. Um, it felt like it, I will say, at the time. So uh, we, should, we should talk offline about some of that another time. Uh, so, Bernard, you're you're very uh, well placed to bring your expertise and your background to this issue of what's going to go on now in terms of the Israeli fight in Gaza. Uh, what are your expectations? How long will this last? What kind of tactics are we going to see? Just sort of walk us through how you think this is going to play out in the days and weeks ahead. Yeah, great questions. So I think the Israeli response is going to be going to be based on three things that failed on the 7th of October. The first thing that failed was deterrence. 
The second thing that failed was advanced warning. The third thing that failed was forward defense at the border. All three of these were things that Israel's national security strategy has always depended on. They need to have a sense in the minds of their enemies that attacking Israel comes with an inordinate amount of costs. That obviously failed on the 7th of October when Hamas launched the greatest attack uh, against Israeli civilians that's ever really, frankly, ever happened. Second, the Israelis have always placed a great amount of faith in their advanced warning and their intelligence services and their security services. Something has gone terribly wrong with that process that I am sure the Israelis are uh, looking at trying to fix. And then third, they have to figure out and overcome a failure of forward defense, defense at the border. A small country like Israel can't trade space for time. They've got to defend forward. They've got civilians located on all their vulnerable border points. So what's probably going to happen over the next few days is the Israeli defense forces and their security services are going to attempt to put together the best plan that they can to reach into Gaza, almost certainly with a ground invasion of some sort, that will be sustained long enough to root out what in the Israeli Defense Forces' minds would be the ability of Hamas to ever launch any type of a strike like this for a number of years coming forward. The very brutality and scale of what happened on the 7th of October takes off the table realistically a moderated response by the Israelis or a response in which they would opt to take two or three months to ramp up their capabilities. There'll be enormous pressure under the Netanyahu, for the Netanyahu government to do a maximalist response in as short a time as possible. What does that maximalist response look like? I mean, are, are we at a point now where um, Hamas leadership has to be either captured or killed across the board? I mean, what, what is a maximalist response from the perspective of Netanyahu and the Israelis given the terror attack that Israel has just suffered? I think at minimum it includes destroying Hamas's leadership, its middle-level cadres of personnel and staff, its support networks, and doing all of this, frankly, in a physical space, especially for an American audience, that is very, very small. Gaza is barely bigger than two Washington, D.C.s, uh, two and a half million people. But you're already seeing with the uh, amount of airstrikes and artillery strikes going on inside Gaza, a very different scale of an Israeli response. But I think that response is not going to be so much focused on how much infrastructure they destroy, but the human infrastructure of Hamas and the support networks that allow it to operate. And I think that will take probably at least several weeks for the Israeli Defense Forces and their security services to locate, find, fix, and finish those type of targets. What do you think about what Hezbollah is likely to do in, in Lebanon here, facing, facing the Israelis with all the missiles that they've got stockpiled from the north? Do you think that there is a, a high likelihood that they could become an, an active combatant in this as well? Or do they probably see the Israeli responses as not worth it? I think that's the biggest question in the mind of Israeli security service personnel probably going forward over the next two weeks. What is the likelihood that Hezbollah would feel it has to or want to 
join in a in the fight against uh, the Israeli Defense Forces in the north. Absolutely, Hezbollah has more than enough capability and rockets and missiles to cause enormous damage in northern Israel. But the Israelis have a great deal of counterforce and counterstrike capability as well. Um, I'd say, you know, the problem right now is that I think the Israelis have very little confidence or it's going to take a while to reestablish confidence in knowing what their enemies are about to do or might do. That will tend to push them towards assuming a set of worst case scenarios and build responses towards that. Let's uh, have a word from our sponsor here. Then I want to ask you about the Iranian hand in this. When Mike Lindell invented the original MyPillow over two decades ago, it had everything you could want in a pillow. You've witnessed the way this company of the same name has grown since then, offering so many different creature comforts for your home. Now they've turned their attention back to that original pillow, employing new technology to improve upon it, making it a MyPillow 2.0. The MyPillow 2.0 has the patented adjustable fill of the original MyPillow, but now has fabric that is made with temperature-regulating thread. The MyPillow 2.0 is the softest, smoothest, coolest pillow you'll ever own. You'll find yourself not waking up in the middle of the night just to turn the pillow over looking for a cool spot to land your head. And the pricing is right, too. A queen-size MyPillow is 2.0 is less than 40 bucks, just $39.99 when you use my name, Buck, as the promo code. King-size pillow is just $10 more. Pillow comes with a 10-year warranty and a 60-day money-back guarantee. Go to MyPillow.com, click on the radio listener special square, get the queen-size MyPillow 2.0 for $39.99, and the king-size for $10 more. Enter promo code Buck to get your MyPillow 2.0 now. Uh, Bernard, the Iranian hand in this has already been reported on Wall Street Journal and other sources, and also Hezbollah and, and Hamas have basically said Iran was involved in the planning of this, so it's pretty clear that that's the case. Do you do you think that uh, there's a chance that Israel may escalate and go directly after Iran with targeted strikes against personnel? What's What's your sense of the likely Israeli response to Iran's hand in all this? I think it would be very, it would take a lot of leaps of faith to believe that Iran didn't have anything to do with this. Iran is the most important benefactor and patron for Hamas. For Hamas operatives to pull off an operation of this size without telling Iran would have risked their entire support from Tehran. So I think there's ample evidence, and I think more evidence will come out over the given, coming days uh, about their hand in this. I think the first order of business for the Israelis will be reestablishing deterrence vis-a-vis Hamas in Gaza. Longer term, I think they'll turn their attention to what would be the proper response to the Iranians. I think in this, there'd be an active conversation between them and their Western allies, especially the United States, as to what the American appetite for that might be. And certainly, you know, with the, the current White House which is taken a much more accommodationist view towards Iran than you know most administrations have. I think that would be a very complex discussion between those two governments. What are, what are Iranian goals right now, uh, vis-a-vis its support for Hamas and Hezbollah and just in the region? What are what are the mullahs trying to achieve? So it's easy to forget how ideological at the very top the Iranian regime is. They really do believe in their revolution. They do believe in the ideology that underpins it. And they've carried out a set of activities over decades 
that are completely in line with that philosophy, which is push their brand of Islam, their brand of politics into their neighbors and neighboring states, often using proxies like they did in Yemen with the Houthi groups, in Lebanon with Hezbollah, and certainly in uh, the Palestinian territories with Hamas. So this is part and parcel of how Iran and Iraq, frankly, uh, probably the biggest test case or use case. So this is a tried and true tactic for the Iranians. And if you think about it from their perspective, they've been able to do this for decades with very little cost other than you know economic sanctions extracted upon them. And certainly over the last couple of years, even a lot of those sanctions have come off. Even last week, uh, $6 billion in sanctions got lifted on them. They got access to a lot of money they hadn't had in a long time uh, in return for releasing five Iranian-American citizens and a few other things that they have done. If you look at this from the Iranian point of view, it's a winning strategy. And so for them, it's just extending their, uh, extending their influence and reach across the broader Middle East uh, t- targeting and, and trying to kill as many of their perceived enemies as, as possible. Um, what do you think the Biden administration response should should be right? I mean, we know that Biden is really a continuation of Obama's uh, appeasement of, of Iran and, and that the Democrat positioning on Iran is very, I would say, very favorable to what, what, the, uh, what the mullahs want. Uh, but if, if they were to get serious, and, and perhaps there's some... I mean, I don't think this is likely, but it's theoretically possible there's some changing of minds in Democrat circles in D.C. because of this horrific attack in Israel. What would a robust policy look like to deal with Iran in such a way that that it wouldn't feel such a it wouldn't have such a free hand in its mind to engage in this nefarious terror sponsoring behaviors all across the Middle East and really around the world? So I think the Biden administration would struggle a lot with coming up with a policy that could do that that in their mind would not risk Iranian retribution and counterattacks in Iraq, in the Gulf states, all of which there's significant American interests in. I'd say the most realistic thing that the Biden administration might consider would be reimposing severe restrictions on Iranian oil sales. Even the $6 billion Iran got will pale in significance to how much money they're going to make as oil moves towards $100 a barrel, and their ability to sell as much of that oil as possible fuels the Iranian government's ability to conduct repression at home and bad behavior abroad. But I I would not, I don't think it's realistic to believe that 13 months before an election, the uh, current administration is going to modify its Iranian policy all that much, and not to the point of hostilities. I want to talk about the... I'm not saying that... Go ahead. Yeah, I'm not saying I would necessarily agree with it, but I just to be realistic, I think they are not likely to push forward. Uh, we'll come back and talk about some uh, follow on threats and threats to the U.S. homeland specifically, Bernard, in just a second. But some people in the know are speculating on a coming change to our currency system. According to one of them, a former Wall Street insider and digital currency expert, our federal government could soon announce this change. In this scenario, our paper currency could be replaced with something much more trackable, a digital currency. This expert is known by the name Tika Tuwari. He's warning that an official announcement could come within months. He's exposing this government plan in an online video and showing you the three steps you need to take to prepare. Go to dollarrecall.com to watch this video 
You'll learn more about this plan and how to opt out if you decide to do so. Again, go to dollarrecall.com and learn how to prepare before it's too late. Your entire savings could depend on it. dollarrecall.com, paid for by Palm Beach Research Group. So there are concerns about our wide-open border, about uh, attacks on us by either Iranian uh, Iranian groups, uh, different proxies in the Middle East, our IRGC Quds Force, some kind of uh, you know Hamas-affiliated cell. I mean, this is what people are talking about right now, Bernard. What do you think of that? I mean, do you think the U.S. should be in an elevated threat posture right now, or is your expectation that this is all really going to be limited in terms of the kinetic, you know, the the, the fighting, uh, limited to uh, Gaza and its in immediate environs? So to the plus side, within the Middle East uh, states, I don't think there's a desire by anybody other than Iran to want this thing to escalate. Unlike previous conflicts that have happened in, uh, involving the Israelis and the Palestinians, there's not a lot of, there's no sympathy for Hamas in most of the mainstream Arab countries. Uh, they don't want this thing to get worse out of hand, but I don't see any of them contributing to make it worse. Your second, your first question, I think, is a powerful one. And that is, you know, the key feature in counterterrorism and being prepared for it uh, is understanding the threat from the people who might carry out those acts. It's impossible to have a realistic counterterrorism policy if you actually have no control over your border. A unwillingness to defend your own borders or to even know who's coming into your country makes it very hard for counterterrorism officials in any country, whether it's Europe or the United States, to build a realistic plan to deal with that threat. Um, I think it would be very hard to be you know, in the American security services right now and to give an honest answer to their political bosses that they feel confident that they know enough about who's coming into the United States to make a calculation on what that risk really is. It's unknowable. And so but elevated. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's right. It, it's both unknowable and and elevated. Um, do you think that there's going to be any change from any of our other regional allies in their posture toward Hamas as a result of this? Or are we likely to see a continuation of the status quo? You know, uh, Qatar, for example, still being very friendly toward Hamas. Uh, you know, other, other you, you know what I mean? Like, is, is there going to be any realignment sure. that happens as a result of this? So, I mean, Hamas has long been listed under as a terrorist organization by the U.S. State Department. However, it's always been in that gray zone of militant group, terrorist group that w was viewed as not particularly trying to target Americans and so came in for a sort of a different set of policy options than al-Qaeda or ISIS did. I think there'll be a lot of discussion about reevaluating that and doing more towards them and more to stop. As to the Middle Eastern states themselves, I think the biggest thing you see out here, and I'm in Saudi Arabia right now, um, what you find is people saying the American unwillingness to understand and appreciate Iran's regional bad behavior continues to make things like what just happened on 7 October more likely to happen. And so certainly within the Gulf states, which have seen number of attacks by Iranian surrogates, they see this as simply a continuation of a terrible trend line that's been going on for over a decade. Do you think this will affect the efforts by the uh, at the end of the Trump administration 
to bring about closer Saudi, uh, well, Saudi-Israeli relations and, and some of those um, movements that were made on a peace and diplomacy side? Yeah, at most, those may pause for a period of time, but the trend line towards normalization between state-to-state relations in this part of the world has been towards normalization and not towards further antagonized relationships, especially within the GCC states and the Israelis. Hold on one second, Bernard. One more word from our sponsor here. Are you wondering why everyone's talking about Belize these days? Because Belize is fun. I mean, imagine visiting a country just a couple of hours from Miami, Atlanta, Dallas, and Houston, where you can enjoy both a rainforest and white sand beaches all in the same day. Belize is fun because you can float through caves down a jungle river, climb an ancient Mayan ruin, swim with nurse sharks and rays, cast for a grand slam, the ultimate in fly fishing on the flats, snorkel or scuba dive, the longest living reef in the world, or simply relax, enjoy the beach, bars playing live music, and dance under the stars barefoot every night after the best lobster dinner you've ever had. Don't take my word for it. Go visit. Belize is fun for so many reasons. Download your free Belize handbook and guide. Go to BelizeIsFun.com to get that guide. That's Belize, B-E-L-I-Z-E, BelizeIsFun.com, because it is fun. Uh, Bernard, uh, do you think that this is going to be over in a matter of weeks, or could you see this conflict extending uh, for months? I think the active military phase of this probably goes on for up to a month. I think the long-term fallout of it heightened number of terrorist attacks on perhaps Western interests and certainly Israeli interests in countries that are outside the region, that extends for probably six months to a year as the fallout of this uh, becomes more understood. You know, the longer, the, the extreme nature of this attack is going to require an extreme response. That is going to tend to radicalize or set off, you know, lone wolves or whatever type of other attacks one might think to call these things. But there's going to be elevated violence against Israelis and some Western interests, I would imagine, over the next six months to a year. Bernard Hudson, uh, formerly CIA's uh, Director of Operations Chief. Um, Bernard, honored to have you on the show, sir. Appreciate you being here, and we will talk to you soon. Thank you. Since 9-11, the Tunnel to Towers Foundation has been committed to improving the lives of America's veterans, first responders, and their families. For over 20 years, the foundation has helped America keep its solemn promise to never forget. Tunnel to Towers provides mortgage-free homes to Gold Star families and the families of fallen first responders with young children and builds specially adapted smart homes for catastrophically injured veterans, as well as work to eradicate veteran homelessness. David Marshall served in the Army during World War II and fought in the Battle of the Bulge. He's never forgotten the sacrifices of his comrades in arms, nor the efforts of first responders on 9-11 and in the days and months that followed. He is a loyal and proud foundation donor. Tunnel to Towers is committed to supporting veterans, first responders, and their families, and so many of them need your help. Join the foundation on its mission to do good and never forget. Donate $11 a month to Tunnel to Towers at T2T.org. That's T2T.org.
I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie. Because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to More Than a Movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. 